When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, point of sale probably isn't at the top of your list. It's the transactional finality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the first mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system built for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity, your managers will love the world-class support team, and your guests will love that they can get the same delicious beer with the same amazing service from anywhere. Fall in love with your point of sale. Fall in love with Arrived. This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Swish, Substance, Reciprocal, Baby Genius. The names alone stir strong feelings in the hearts of beer geeks. With these releases and more, Bissell Brothers grew from a tiny family operation into one of the most talked about breweries in American craft beer. Founded in 2013, with the mission to change people's perceptions of what beer and the beer experience can be, Bissell Brothers is run by, well, two brothers, Peter and Noah Bissell. Heavily influenced by the growing Vermont beer scene, the brothers Bissell were unlikely owners of a craft brewery. As you'll hear, Noah, who runs the technical and brewing side of the operation, was only 21 years old when he pitched his older brother Peter, who runs the business and marketing sides, to open the brewery. In this two-part series, we go deeper with co-founder Peter Bissell to capture more of the essence of Bissell Brothers and explore Peter's engaging and introspective business philosophy. If Pete's name is familiar, it's because we spoke with him a few months back in episode 8 to learn about what Bissell Brothers was doing to survive the pandemic. The interview is a good one, and I recommend going back and giving it a listen. In this first of two new episodes, we learn more about Pete's upbringing in the small northern town of Milo, Maine, his relationship with his younger brother Noah, why he gave up a successful career as a photographer to open a brewery, and why he's not drinking much beer these days. He also tells the story of the origins of the infamous green van that sustained the brewery in its early days, only to make a reappearance with the advent of COVID. Pete is now in his mid-30s and having to balance running two businesses, Bissell Brothers and High Roller Lobster Company, along with a family with two young kids, one of whom comes into the kitchen to check on Dad while we're recording. This interview was recorded in late February, right before COVID hit. But this interview is evergreen, as they say in the media world, offering insights into one of the beer industry's most interesting voices. Pete and I share a love of ice hockey, both watching and playing, and has become a big part of the brewery's social and public outreach. So that's where we start our conversation. So we were talking a little bit about hockey and about sports. How? You know, when did you start playing hockey? Uh, so growing up, I, uh, you know, my small high school didn't have those types of facilities, uh, but I, there was a rec program in Brownville, which is the next town over, and I fell in love with it. I think I was in fourth grade and it's all I wanted to do. It was so fun. I was, I, I picked up skating quick, which as you know, like that's the key to having fun and playing well, especially when you're a kid is if you can skate well, boy, the world is your oyster on the, on the ice. So uh, my father saw this interest and Milo didn't have a municipal rink and Milo was the bigger town. So I, looking back on it, it's one of those things when you become a father later on, 
you look back, you just, when your father's doing something for you at the time, you don't think anything of it. But when you become a grown man, you're like, well, where'd you find the money for that in the town and in, in Milo's town budget? But he got the infrastructure together for a municipal rink, got lights, got a warming hut built. And I just took took all this as, oh, okay, yeah, that's what dads do. Um, and that was all we did for for until I was old enough to, I began to fizzle out when I got into high school, but that was all we did. And I played a couple of years organized hockey in the next town over Dover, which actually has had, had a high school team and, and a rank. Um, and it was always a fan. You know, I went to university of Maine, which I caught, you know, I was lucky enough to go there at the tail end of like the ultimate hockey dynasty period. It was, it was fading at the time, but it was still, uh, it was still um, a temple to enter Alfond Arena as a student in the student section on a Friday night. Boy, that was like the Roman Coliseum. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, life kind of took over and um, um, business aspirations, you know, took center stage. And after the dust had settled on the brewery after a couple of years, I was like, I got to get back into this. I'm not getting any younger. And then formed the team with a couple of friends that we had been talking about it for a while. And it was rough at the beginning. Um to remember how to do this. And, you know, what you talk about humbling, skating competitively, you know, in your early thirties <laughs> after not having done it for, but it's been great. Uh, it's been a great way to stay in shape. We've got a core group of guys and uh, it's a blast, you know, games, practices, socializing. Uh, it's, it's been a blast. So, and so what position do you play? Uh, I play forward mostly um, usually right wing on my line right now. And, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I like to experiment with defense, uh, you know, if, if the night is right, but I get caught out of position wicked fast and uh, it can lead to disaster. So I try to stay stay where I'm, I'm best suited. So as a as a wing, when you're playing, what is it, you know, sort of what is your go to move? What are you trying to do? You know, what are you, what are you known for out there? What do you, you know, what can you do that, you know, you know maybe keep people are keeping an eye on you? Uh, I'm known I'm known for for passing. Um, I'm known for. Doesn't always hit its mark, but a no look dump from deep in the corner. Uh, we got a couple guys that are real snipers, and uh, if it gets on like McClellan's stick or Cook's stick, like it's a goal. So, uh, and uh, guys from High Roller play now too. So it's um, it's Bissell and High Roller, and uh, and then all the guys that we've met along the way. So, but yeah, that's that's if I had to say that's that's my move because I, I can I can move when I want to. So um, playing in a men's league, you know, if if I see a guy that I know. I can get by. I'll get by him. Go deep in the corner, and then and then put it back, hoping one of uh, one of the more skilled players is there. Is mm. usually my my go to. <laughs> so you're not somebody who's who's just taking shots from the point and just you know, just blasting. No, Mike every... Fava from mm-hmm. Oxbow, uh, one of our one of our defensive uh, players, is absolutely that guy, and um, it will go in with a, a a decent amount of percentage so yeah we got a couple guys that clap from the back but uh no we I'm, I'm down 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 by the net but i try to dish i try to dish i'm not accurate enough i i mean i i put them in but uh that's my move is to quick 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 get down there and then dish it you grew up in maine how would you describe maine for for people who have not been here maine is Maine, I, I, uh, boy, that's a great question. I moved here. Uh, well, I didn't do anything cause I was five years old. Uh, but we moved here, uh, in 87, 86. 
uh, from Portland, Oregon, or that that metro area. And because uh, my father took a job, he meticulously researched and applied for and was hired for the job of resource manager in Baxter State Park, which is a um, it's a whole other podcast uh, for those not familiar with Baxter, but a very large wilderness preserve in northern Maine with a unique sort of um, status. And uh, we so we kind of moved we moved to uh, rural northern Maine. And that's pretty much been the only landscape. It's, it was the landscape I knew growing up. We traveled from time to time, but that was that was my view of the world. And moving down to Portland as an adult hooked me. Even in 2005, before a lot of the uh, sort of revolutions in beer and food that we've seen play out and we've seen Portland take center stage in, uh, even before that, it was still an incredible, an incredibly cosmopolitan city or you know, large town, however you want to look at it, that my eyes had never seen anything like it before as a young man. And I knew this is where I wanted to be because it had all these things that I had only associated before with traveling out of the state, but there was no traffic. You know, I bitch about traffic now and, and then I travel and it's like the traffic here is nothing, nothing. Um, it might slow you down by two or three minutes, but I there I am yelling in the car. <laughs> um so Maine to me is, there's a lot of sort of clashing. You know, I, I, I um, after living down here for a few years, I would go home and it would just look very different. You know, um, the poverty, things like that, You would it, they stood out more. Um, that was what I first noticed when I lived in Portland for a few years. Now, I don't know, you don't, I don't see that as much. Um, I, I'm seeing all the positive aspects of the, the rural areas of the state, which is most of the state. You know, I, I really try, Portland is, exists in this very small bubble um, of sort of higher levels of uh, affluence, higher levels of culture. Um, it's not representative. I love it. Uh, I think it's it's great. It's still very different than any major city, uh, but it's not representative of most of the state. And I always try to, we, we as a company try to keep that in mind. Um, and I don't know, to get back to your initial question, life is really good here. Uh, I think the winter, especially January and February, keep enough people out. So we've ended up, especially down in Southern Maine, but you see it trickling to more rural areas of the country or the of the state, which is super exciting to me. We can talk more about that. That's was one of the drivers with Bissell Three Rivers, but um we have all the things that people often go to big cities for. Um, I, I think we're culturally diverse or working at it. Uh, we have incredible, we have some of the best food and drink in the country. And I like to think I'm pretty objective with that. I try not to just say, well, you're just rooting for your own hometown. No, I'm pretty, I'd, I'd like to think I'm um, pretty scrutinizing of my hometown, but boy, we really deliver on beverages, um, food of all types and the experiences that go along with them summers here are second to none and yes we're called vacation land we do have an influx of people that come to experience all those things in the summer but it's not it's just easy to live here if you're willing to put up with uh with the weather (laughs) and how would you describe the town you know the town you grew up in milo Milo, um, Milo's moniker is a friendly town. Um, it, 
I feel like to adequately describe something like a town that you grow up in, you you almost can't do it until you're an adult and um, sort of some of those aspects of life come full circle. Uh, Growing up in Milo, no one locked our doors. No one locked their doors. Um, When I got to a certain age, I was free to roam with my friends in the summer on our bikes. Um, We could visit pretty much all areas of the town from our bikes, whether it was going down to one of the river's edge, the town of three rivers as well. So there's three rivers that go through the town. That's what the, that branch of the brewery is named after. Um, there was a freedom that when that's all, you know, that's, you know, you don't really think much of it, but when you have something to compare it to, like my kids, they'll have some freedom in this neighborhood, but not, we lock our doors when we leave. Um, you know, there's aspects of community growing up in a town of 3000 people in rural central Maine that um, I don't know that we'll ever experience again living down here. Um, you're, I think very much harken back to another time and place in this country when American families lived much more publicly. Everyone had eyes, you know, if I was misbehaving somewhere, my mother would hear about it. Um, no one, no one would say anything to me, but my mother would hear about it. And then I get questioned about it later that night. Um, and she would do the same thing. Um, so that's what I mean when I say like, you know, you're kind of living publicly, you know, we'd holler to our neighbors from the front porch. Um, we'd walk everywhere. We'd walk to school, walking to school. I started walking to elementary school, which is not far. The high school is right behind our house, but I would walk to fifth grade with my friends and meet them. You know, it felt like we were adults. It was super exciting. And, uh, I would, you know, my kids are going to go to elementary school not too far at all around the corner. I'm going to be walking them, you know, and this is still an incredibly safe area. It's just different. Um, so my brother and I will, will get into conversations about that and just those hidden um, benefits that you don't see when it's all you know when you're a kid and your brain is, you're just thinking about being a kid. You're not thinking about, well, what's it like to live here? Those things I look back on now and even if we can't replicate them for our kids, we're going to try our best to evoke them. And we spend time up there. You know, we have a house. My father still has the house, the the, the family house up there. So uh, um, we, we want to do our best to invoke those values and that freedom as much as we can with our kids. But it's really something that you don't see until you're an adult. And it's it, it, was, it was a great upbringing. Um, I liken it to, you know, a lot of Stephen King's literature. Um, without the horror clown aspect, but you know that he, I think, in, in his novels, paints such a perfect picture of growing up in small town Maine that is informed by by the truth because he's a Mainer. So that's uh, it was it was like Derry growing up in Derry, but without killer clowns and and all that. <laughs> you mentioned your brother and your brother Noah uh, is your partner in he's the brother in Bissell Brothers. Uh, when you moved from Portland, you said you were five. And my understanding is you, there's, what, seven years or so difference? Uh, we are six and a half years six, apart. Yep. So 89 and 83. So when he was born, how did how did that sort of change things for you? Or sort of what was that your perception? Um, my parents told me this was a kind of a, a common inside joke in our house that when they told me that I was getting a baby brother, I started weeping on the staircase and just exclaimed, I don't think I'm ready for this. Um, but it was great. Uh, we, we have always, you know, I think we were far enough apart in age that there was sort of a caretaker mentality. We were never, we were never in competition. Um, and 
um, we all hung out, you know, there were neighborhood kids his age and there were neighborhood kids my age. So um, there was a, um, everyone looked out for everyone. But as the older, as part of the older set, you know, uh, we would, uh, we would look after the younger kids and it was, it was kind of funny growing up and, and beginning to view my brother as a peer because he, I, we, I had always been his older brother and kind of caretaker in that I would look out for him because we weren't that close in age. You know, I was very, you know, six year age gap when you're two grown men isn't it's, it's different when you're a child, that's, that's a big spread. So I was, I was like the de facto babysitter. Um, I was the caretaker. I showed, I introduced him to music and to video games and things like that, uh, for the first time. So, um, I think I kind of had to shake some of those sort of protectorate, uh, feelings when we started the company. Cause it's like, okay, you're not, you're my little brother, but you know, we're both grown adults and, uh, You've got ideas of your own. So I think at the beginning, I um, might have been a little bit overbearing just because those things were so ingrained and so programmed. How would you describe Noah? Um, Noah's much more introverted than I am. Um, he's he's very funny. He's uh, we're, we're similar in a lot of ways, and then we're different in a lot of ways. And... We, we, we couldn't pick, we can't pick, you know, the people that we are, but looking back, I think it has been advantageous for, with the business. Uh, I mean, he owns the business and he really has been primarily focused on brewing. I think he starting, the, starting into this, you know, Bissell Brothers opened when he was 23. Um, and, you know, we, we got local acclaim kind of right off the gate. So there was, there was pressure. There was pressure to perform. We sensed from the earliest days that we were doing something new that this market hadn't seen before. I mean, that was a whole idea. And so there was pressure from the beginning and he has from day one just wanted to learn more and become a better brewer every single day. Um, so I don't think he's ever done things like look at a P and L or look at our bank account and you know, anything with the books or, uh, um, he, his focus has been beer and my focus has been on building a representation of that, the brand and managing the business. Of course, neither of these things, brewing or managing the business, we do alone now. We've got a staff of about 36 people and, but th that, um, that has, has been his primary driver, um, introverted, but but not so, especially lately with, uh, you know, I, I think he's been making an effort recently to to touch the community more and and get get himself out there. And I think the podcast has been a great vehicle for him for that because he has a lot to say. Um, he he's been coming to fest more. Uh, it's been really cool to see. And um, at the same time, I've been dropping back. You know, I've got the kids now, so I'm not at fests as much as I once was or events in general, traveling as much as I was. I'm trying to make the business better increasingly just head down, like I was telling you earlier, um, an internal focus as opposed to an external focus. So it's been fun to kind of watch the, those two um, personality traits of ours begin to, to shift and divert a little bit. But he's very focused on beer. He's um, very serious. He cares a lot about our staff. Um, he, he is also, you know, maxed out, pulled in a million different directions. He thinks about every decision he makes 20 times over. Um, 
but he uh yeah i he's he's a great guy and uh he i i've felt bad at times you know i i got serious about my life and my career around 26 he never had that you know he never had that luxury I feel like uh, the company's kind of robbed him of his young adulthood a little bit. I don't think he would have had it any other way, but you know, he was put into this world at 21 when we decided to do this. And uh, again, the company launched when he was 23 or 22, because um, his birthday's in December. Um, so, but like I said, I don't think he would have it any other way, but I, I think about that sometimes. Um, like, boy, this kid got thrust right into it. So, but he's, he, he's crushing it really. Uh, it's cool to watch him in the zone too, especially in Milo, um, where he's still doing primarily all of the, the blending and the brewing. Um, it's cool to watch him in his zone. It's, 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 um, like, like any of us with our passions, you know, when you hit that level of flow, it's like, if anyone else around you is smart, they just back off and they let it happen. It's cool. And how do you think he would describe you? Oh boy, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that that's a good question. I don't know. We don't um, we don't talk about these things very much. Um, I don't know. I I, um, I think he knows. I don't think that he's understood the work I do. Um, I do a lot of reading on on psychology and uh, um, you know sort of human nature and and uh, human behavior to aid in the work and you know one of the core tenets that keeps appearing is that when talking about business introverts usually in their brains they think that sales are a given you know that the product should just sell itself and um they don't understand that aspect of it i'm not saying he does he does um but i think at times it's been difficult for him especially in the early days i think it's it was difficult for him to understand what I was trying to do. Um, but he gets it for sure, you know, and we, I mean, we were texting last night about uh, a couple labels we have coming down the line from Milo. Um, we're entering a more collaborative stage in our relationship. I mean, we're, we both, both on Bissell, we've collaborated a lot, but you know, he's always, I think he felt he had a lot of catching up to do when we started. I think he felt the pressure of being young. So it was just, I'm going to learn as much as I can every day. You know, it was difficult. You know, we weren't acting as partners day in, day out um, for many years, but we're beginning to more and it's it's been great. But I, I think I don't think it should have or could have happened any earlier than now um, because of that. You know, I think we both felt we had a lot of catching up to do and a lot of sort of baseline things to establish with the company because we're not looking about getting to next year. You know, we we're looking at the long term. And um, we've kind of come, we've kind of gone down these different paths and they're, they're returning together and we're increasingly leading the company as a unified unit, which is, I think, I think the staff needs, I think the staff is looking for that. Um, but I don't know how he would describe me. I, <laughs> I, I do think that he understands more than ever though, like the work, the work that I'm, have, have been trying to do since day one arrived all the way. It's a system built by people who worked in the industry and they regularly check in with their clients for not only support, but ways they can potentially grow or help you pivot and readjust as needed. I've worked with all the major systems out there and I would never pick another service, says Katie Neerling, the GM of Scott Brew Stillery, about arrived. 
you noted uh, that your career path had started, you know, a couple of years, you know, you had been coming serious a couple of years after, you know, he would have been, you know, in this situation. What was that career path? What were you doing? Um, I was a commercial photographer and graphic designer freelance. Uh, that was what I thought my life was going to be. I I won my first camera in 1995 from the McDonald's Monopoly game. And I mean, it was a film camera, but from the beginning, I, I was trying to trying to get creative with it. I remember we had a trampoline. Well, our neighbors had a trampoline. And I remember some of the first photos I would uh, try to get were putting a strobe light under the trampoline at night and having my friends jump and seeing what I could capture. This is pre-digital, mind you. So it was as much money as I had to buy rolls of film and then you see what you got. It was a, it was a really exciting way to get into it. And um, that, that sort of planted the seed. Um, my father, for work, got a digital camera not too long after. This is in 1998, 1999. So it was one where a 3.5 inch floppy disk went into the whole camera. But we thought it was baller. You know, has capacity for like 15 like super pixelated images. I loved it. That gave me more creative control to begin experimenting. And, um, you know, flash forward to freshman year of college, I'm downloading like Photoshop 3 on the illegally on the on the school's uh you know closed direct connect system and um i for graduation my parents got me my first digital camera like like canon rebel and i want i knew that that was what i wanted to do with my life it really gave me a lot of satisfaction and i felt that i feel like everybody's creative but it's about finding the right avenue for that given person and images definitely for me like that connected with me and that was that's how I see the world is in images even when I'm not taking pictures but um, at the same time I wanted to live too so I got into the restaurant industry and it was you know after 12 after however many years of schooling I just wanted to live and earn money and be an adult so I was always doing photos but I didn't get serious about beginning to marry that to income until I was about 25 or 26 and ended up with a studio downtown above a bar called the Thirsty Pig, which also plays heavily into Bissell Brothers origin story. And I I thought that was what I was going to do with my life. I was doing work for other studios. I was traveling. I was growing my, my, you know, it did teach me the foundations of business. It's what I first started using QuickBooks on. And, uh, but when, and I was at the same time in my personal life, I was, my brother as a teenager was really driving the, uh, going down the beer rabbit hole. And he was at uh, the University of Maine at Farmington. And I was trying a lot of beers for the first time with him. And I don't, I don't, I don't even care at this point. Like, yeah, he was underage, like whatever. I don't, I don't care. I think the fact that the drinking age in this country is 21, but kids can go off to war at 18. That's so backwards, but that's a podcast for another day. Um, but, uh, so I had gotten into beer largely through my younger brother. Um, and he, you know, he had seen what I was doing. You know, I I was really obsessed with photography and graphic design and I was doing a lot of my own stuff. And it was, uh, November, 2011, we were home on Thanksgiving break. And he was like, I'm going to do this when I get out of school. Like I want to do this, but I don't want to go work for someone else. We can do this together. And it's, it, it, I was just crescendoing with photography. I was getting like, I was, I was approaching where I wanted to be. 
Um, I was making great money. I was really in love with a lot of the projects I was being hired for. Um, but that, the idea of building something bigger than, because if you have, a, I was still freelancing. The work was limited to what I could do in a day. I'd like to think I was grinding, but it's still going to always be limited as to what I my personal output is. And I saw the promise of starting a company where this can become bigger than the individual parts. So I was happy to pivot. It wasn't night and day. I still had lots of photography contracts to fulfill. And I continued to grow the business over the next two years, which we spent formulating the brewery and, and doing all that. That was like a applied MBA right there. Um, I learned more in that two-year stretch than I ever did in school, ever. You know, And that's, that's maybe another story for another day. But um, yeah, that was, I was going to be a commercial photographer. I was a commercial photographer. And um, right as I was getting started in my career, it was time to pivot. And I have never, I still get to do, I still love photography. I have much less time to pursue it personally. But boy, setting up a shoot here at home or, you know, setting up a, a shoot at the brewery, I, I still get to do it. And, uh, or the restaurant, you know, our food at the restaurant photographs so well. So, um, it's, it's still part of my life. And that's one of the many things that I'm thankful for right now. So in November of 2011, your brother comes to you and says, this is my idea. I want to do this professionally. How old was he at that point? 2011. Let's see. He was born in December 20 or uh, 1989, 20. He was 22. We're about to turn 22, 21. And so he, he's 21. He's a year into drinking uh, legally. And he says, I want to open a brewery. What is your response? Um, I, we, uh, when Noah and I get talking about that period, we talk about the text messages furiously. I know no one can see this, but I'm doing like fast thumbs, furiously texting our ideas because he was in Farmington. Excuse me. I was down in Portland, but we were we were spitballing ideas and really getting the juices cooking constantly. Um, and I, it was exciting to me the idea of sort of um, like I said before, going beyond what an individual can produce in a day and uh, and building something bigger than the individual um, founders. And as we thought more about it and looked more about it, we began seeing this incredibly large hole in the industry. You know, we had traveled to Vermont. We had traveled to the first iteration of Hill Farmstead and The Alchemist back when it was uh, down in Waterbury proper. And we had felt magic. You know, we had felt the magic. We, we, we had, among many thousands of others, felt that feeling where you, um, it's, I think it's essential to human existence from time to time in your life, you need to feel that fraternal feeling of being part of something, you know, where you look around at all these other people, you're, everyone's in the know, you know, we're here because it's special and it feels great. And that's going to enhance that first sip. You know, you walk into the alchemist, you hear the clink of the, of the can lids going down, which was very, that was very novel at the time. No one was doing that. You smell this hits you. I don't smell 
our own brewery anymore when I walk in, but I know that others do. And I, for whatever reason, smell other breweries big time if I walk in, but that smell to the uninitiated hits you right in the face and it's intoxicating and it's exciting. And that's going to inform the beverage, you know, that's going to make the, uh, you know, humans, we try to avoid cognitive dissonance at all costs. We don't like to think that we fooled ourselves. So, you know, if, if you're getting these good feelings just by being there and being part of something special, it's going to make whatever you had or whatever you're about to drink the best tasting beer you've ever had, right? So we saw that there was no one, there was no expression of this in Portland at the time. Tasting rooms are very new. This is 2011. The laws across the board were, were very muddy. No one really knew what they could do. It was still wholesale focused. Um, and we thought, boy, if, if we can... If we can create an experience, if we can if we can marry beer that no one was really making in Maine at the time, um, those types of, of hoppy beer from Vermont, they really definitely inspired us. And no one was doing that in Maine, and nor was anyone creating these incredible on-premise experiences. So that was what we leaned into. We began, and I think that's in any industry to make change, you need to first see what no one else sees and or, or what few others see. And the more we talked about it and thought about it, it's like, boy, again, just furious thumbs. You know, no one's doing this. You know, no one is producing these types of hoppy beer that we would really like to drink. So that's what that's what all businesses worth their salt start at start as, right? Is fulfilling their own need of a hole that maybe in, the, in a market that only a few people see at the time. So uh, we began talking more and more about that, about this experiential experience or uh, um, brewery built around these hop forward beers that didn't have a, 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 a West coast profile or a uh, sort of English IPA profile, which were the predominant styles for IPA available at the time. We thought there might be something more there. So that was what kind of started it all. And what did the main beer scene look like at that point? Um, it's funny how diverse it's become. This isn't that long ago. This is, what, nine years ago, eight and a half years ago. But it is like night and day. At the time, though, it was it was intimidating. We thought that this is as saturated as, could be, as you, you could get. You know, you had, at the time, lager-specific producers, Bull Jagger, um, you had companies like Rising Tide, Main Beer Company, Oxbow was brand new. That they were like they were the dark horse in that no one was doing anything like these guys. I remember Noah and I went up there in the summer of 2012 for the first time and met Tim and Jeff was still part of the company at that time and that was such a cool experience. Um, so they were the the new dark horse that no one you know they were doing growlers and things like that. That that was all novel at the time. Um, the brewery had great art in it. Um, but beyond that, you know, you had Allagash, um, and Allagash, I think in 2011 hadn't quite entered its Renaissance as, you know, um, one of the best breweries in the country. They were, but, um, I, I don't think a critical mass of customers sort of realized that yet it happened. We kind of watched it happen. Um, and they obviously deserve every, every ounce of that recognition, but, um, you know, they, they, um, it's, it's funny, you know, we thought we were very intimidated by what we perceived to be total saturation. Um, so we thought long and hard about our role and what we were going to bring to the table. 
And it's funny how I'm trying to think. I think we were main brewery number 37, I want to say. And I'm last told now in 2020 that we have about 150 in the state, a state of 1.3 million people total. So um, obviously we were wrong about it being totally saturated. I think those things that we thought about in 2013 and 2012 about what purpose are we serving beyond throwing just more kindling on the fire, um, those are now life or death decisions that new companies need to make if they want to hit any point of critical mass. But um, it was intimidating and, you know, our, the building that we moved into, One Industrial Way, already had a huge pedigree. That was where Rising Tide had started before moving into their nice big facility. That was where, where Maine Beer Company started before moving into their nice big facility. Um, all these breweries had started there and uh, it kind of had a name for itself. For us being so green, it was just, okay, we know that a brewery can exist, uh, that, that the um, utilities, we didn't know anything. We knew, uh, but our reasoning was, okay, Maine Beer Company had literally been in the space it will, we will be able to operate a brewery here. <laughs> but um, yeah, the scene at the time, you know, you, you kind of had the old guard. Um, you had um, uh, Shipyard and and Gritties and Geary's uh, right around the corner from us. And then you had some of these these newer companies, but they had already quickly established themselves, Rising Tide, uh, Main Beer Company in particular, you know. So those were who we were kind of, okay, like they did it, but is there room for, for someone else to do it? And um, turns out it was yes, but uh, that that perspective always humored me over the coming years because uh, not humored me, I think caused caused humor to me, uh, in that we were sure that the industry was saturated and it wasn't. When you went into you mentioned industrial way and that you know, pedigree is the right word for it. That is a it is you can travel around this country and there are some places that have one or two or three breweries in reasonable walking distance, but there are a few places as small as Portland that have such a high concentration of breweries and successful breweries in one spot as industrial way. Talk, can you talk a little bit just about just the nature of it, the character of industrial way? What, you know, why is, why is that such an incubator of, of, of breweries? Um, I think it's close enough to town. It's about three miles down the road. You've been out to Allagash. It's a. It's close enough to town. You're still in Portland. It's close to the highway, but it's it's at least in our time it was very affordable. You, you know, you for any small business, I feel rent can't be like a crazy concern. Yeah, it was an expense for sure, but it was you know it was very affordable. It had three phase power. Um, it was next to Allagash, which we borrowed Zama Nagels from. We just, we threw up Maydays to Allagash so many times. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. I think in Maine, there's, you know, if there's two breweries or three breweries operating in a building, that's newsworthy. And that's another kind of cool aspect about the state. Um, there isn't a ton going on here, so... Things are newsworthy that maybe wouldn't be in other places. And that's cool. So it had had this reputation. And I think that was part of, because during our time there, that was very much the tasting room revolution. We lived through it. I'd like to think that we contributed heavily to it. Um, us Foundation and Austin Street on the backside, you know, we were the ones there. I mean, Foundation's now have has two other neighbors and they took our, our spaces. You know, they've expanded within the building. Um but we were the three operating there when it was time to 
look at, okay, let's have, we, we, you know, this experience to be complete needs food every day. And I really look, looking back, I really thank our landlord, Don St. John, who owns the building because he was all about, I could see kind of an older person being a little bit apprehensive about what was happening out there, but he really welcomed it. And um, by summer of 2015, the, the park was, it was the park, you know, it had arrived and every weekend it was packed. Um, people jumping around to each because none of us, uh, us Foundation or Austin Street, really were equipped with uh, properly sized ta- tap rooms. It was about the size of the kitchen here that we're sitting in because we didn't know. So then the next step was uh, outdoor seating for everyone. And um, I, looking back, yeah, I, I definitely have to thank Don St. John for being cool with all that because. Uh, it was. It became like a tourist attraction. I remember we had a we had a band or something just playing out, standing on can pallets. Our little patio is packed. I'm in there. I'm in the thick of it, and I turn around and and the landlord is in there, kind of partying with his wife. He's like, "This is great. It was awesome." He wasn't the type of guy that you saw day in day out. Um, I think he had. I think he split his time between several locations. But yeah, I turn around and there he, there he's at partying at the original Bissell Brothers deck at some summer uh, evening. It was awesome. But um, yeah, that was looking back now that there's some distance, the summer of 2015 was a really special time. That was when we realized that we were part of uh, like mini revolution. You know, it was the on-premise revolution and can releases, boom, line around the block, um, which was never the intention, but it became that. And we realized that we had this other kind of thing to deal with on our hands. And there was a responsibility that went with that. But all in all, just that was a very exciting time. And I like talking about my childhood home. You can't see that without some space. So, cause we were, you know, there was a million fires to put out every day, like there is with any new business. But looking back on it, that was a, a crazy time to live through the summer of 2015. That was when High Roller started, started and started coming out. All the, we worked with about five food trucks and they all had, happy exits. They all have brick and mortars in town now. One sold successfully, which is what they wanted to do. So um, everybody came out of that on top, I'd like to think. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrived consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff satisfaction, and bottom line. Chances are, a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Because there's no I in Arrived.